So it's lovely to be back here in this beautiful space. And I noticed as I came in how, how it's evolved over time. I'm, I'm not sure, I think I must have first come here in, in the um, early 2009, perhaps. And it, I just noticed how, how much, through people's practice in this space, how much it's, uh, it's turning into a sacred space here. It was always beautiful. I always liked the floor and the, and the space, and that you can see from where I sit, you can see these lovely trees and so on. But the uh, the energy of this place is really deepening and settling, and that that comes about through through the practice of the people who come here. So it's lovely to witness that, and I feel very happy to be able to come back and to have a, a late Vesak celebration. It's the first time I've celebrated Vesak in June. <laughs> <laughs> But why not? Uh, um, and I think with it being a, a day of recollecting the Buddha, I'd like to just start with that we pay homage to the Buddha, and just uh, those who would like to, in Pali. Tamoetasa Bhagavato Arahato Sama Sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa So it's, uh, they say it's 2,600 years since the Buddha's enlightenment. It's a long time. And miraculously, the Buddha's teaching continues to be taught and practiced in the, this 21st century. If you think about that, you know, one, one man, one human being who lived in India, Nepal, 2,600 years ago, gave you know, became enlightened through his own efforts and investigations and spread the teachings, spent the rest of his life walking on foot over hundreds of miles in India to spread the teaching of what he had realized himself. And that 2,600 years later, that teaching is still being passed on. That's quite miraculous, isn't it? And for me, it's very important to remember that the Buddha was a man. So uh, I noticed in, you know, it, it, in traditional Buddhist cultures, it's quite easy to start to um, see the Buddha as a, as a kind of a god, you know, some, some, and, the, and the state of Buddhahood is, is really unreachable and, and far, far beyond any of our grasp, or any of our, certainly beyond our grasp, but beyond any of our um, reach. And we can even think also of, of, of enlightenment, of the arahant, the state, as being, you know, we don't even bother thinking about that because that's for those, you know, really high up beings. And we're just these kind of ordinary people who are struggling with a confused mind, restless mind, sleepy mind. So don't even bother thinking about the possibility of getting enlightened, just try and be a little bit less suffering, a little bit more clear, a little bit more compassionate. But uh, I just would like to use this, this day and this opportunity to 
remember that the, the Buddha was a human being, just as we are, and that he passed on his teachings to human beings like us. And they weren't all um, you know, great ascetics or great uh, meditation practitioners. When he first became enlightened, when the Buddha first became enlightened, after his, his many struggles, I mean, he, uh, you probably know that he grew up as a, as a kind of a prince in a, in a very wealthy and affluent and um, privileged family. And he had all of the pleasures that anyone could wish for and trained in many skills in, in the um, arts of war and the um, in the you know, studying the the, tech, the scriptures of that time, and in arts, you know, he had many, he developed many skills. He had he had many um, many things he could do with his body and mind, and he had every pleasure he could wish for. So his father really went out of his way to make sure his son had everything he could wish for, so he wouldn't get dissatisfied with a worldly life, so that he would become the heir to, to uh, his, his kingdom. But uh, despite all of this, the Buddha, the Bodhisattva Siddhartha did start to question, well, what is outside the gates of the palace? And although he did sometimes travel outside the gates of the palace, always when, when that happened, the you know, word would go out that he was coming and the streets would be lined with flags and all, you know, all of the beautiful people would come to the front and the old and sick would go to the back, you know, hidden away in the houses. And so he'd be presented with a, a very beautiful image of the world, which was just a partial image, it's not the whole picture. But his curiosity got the better of him and although he had everything he could wish for and he was married, had a, had a child, a son, he couldn't help but keep looking, you know, what, what, what else is there? out there. And so he asked um, the chariot driver whether he would you know, sneak him out of the, of, the, of the palace without his father knowing. And he went off into the, into the streets in, on a normal day when nobody was expecting him, incognito. And as he was traveling through the streets, he saw a man who was sick, who was very ill, lying, lying in the street, very ill. And he asked his charioteer, what's happened to him? And the charioteer said, well, he's, he's sick, he's a sick man. And the Siddhartha was quite horrified. I thought, gosh, what is that? And, and can that happen to me? And the charioteer says, yes, it can happen to anybody. Anybody can get sick. So that was kind of a, a wake-up call. And then he kept traveling and he saw an old man. He hadn't seen anyone old or wrinkled and bent over. Anyone who's been to India will see, you know, when people get old, they really look old, double, bent over double often, and, and really teeth falling out, and not much hair. You know, in the West, we can kind of cover it up a bit. <laughs> Even corpses we cover, you know. We put makeup on corpses in this country, so. <laughs> but, you know, we, we can make aging look like it isn't aging as much as it is. But in, in India, you just see it for how it is. The, toothless smiles and the, the bent over backs and the knuckle you know, gnarled fingers. So he saw this old man and he said, my goodness, what's happened to him? And uh, the charioteer said, well, that's an old man. 
And then he was kind of rather horrified to see that. And he said, does that happen to everybody? I said, yeah, if you live long enough, that's what happens to you. That will happen to you too. And so it was kind of a wake-up call. And they kept travelling and then, as you do often see in India, they, they saw a, a corpse, a dead body. And that was really strange. So he, he looked, well, what is that? What's happened to him? And the charity said, well, that's a corpse and this is a dead man, a dead, dead person. And that was like, what? And so he said, yes, you know, it comes to all of us eventually. Well, sooner or later, we all die. So this was, this, these truths had kind of been hidden from the Buddha in his life and came as a, as a kind of shock. And uh, so he started to question, well, what's it all about then? What is it all for then? You know, if our bodies get old and sick and we die, what, what are we doing? What am I doing just following the next pleasure and the next pleasure and the next pleasure? What's the purpose of it all? And he kept, they kept travelling and they saw a, a, a sadhu, an, an ascetic, a renunciant on the street who's wearing simple robes and just had a little, little bowl and looked very peaceful, very serene. And he asked, well, what's that? What's he doing? And the charity said, well, that's a renunciant. He's a, He's, he's, decided, he's given up following the pleasures of the world and he's looking for the, for the deeper truth inside. So when he saw that, it awakened within him that yearning to find the deeper truth inside and recognized, you know, he recognized that the, with all the pleasures, all of the wonders that he had around him, it wasn't really a, a, something that he could See, there was no safety in it, because as long as we grow old and sick and die, you know, where can we find security in sensual pleasures? So this is the, the story of the Buddha's first stepping out into the world to, to look for the truth, you could say. And even though it's, it, it's, in some ways it can seem a bit far-fetched from our lives, in some ways it's very similar, because at this time, we, you know, young people grow up being shown images of youth and beauty and health and happiness and, you know, there's, a, there's the, the kind of dream of eternal youth. And uh, when I first came to America, actually, I visited a yoga center and there was a, a little flyer of a man who was a hundred and something and looked really great and was saying, you know, if you live like me, you can live to be, you know, a hundred and whatever it is. And, kind of got the impression that this guy thought he was going to live forever and so there is this, <laughs> this kind of ethos in the, in the West that you, know, you can be young and beautiful and, and live forever and if you don't then it's because you're doing something wrong because you haven't bought the right products or you're not eating the right food or you're not exercising in the right way so you're doing something wrong so you're ageing but actually it's, it's the nature of this body. So in some ways we get fooled by the same same things, and then one day we wake up and say, hang on a minute, this isn't really doing it. So then the, the Buddha left his, his wife and his little child and went out to seek for enlightenment. So this is often the kind of controversial point that the Buddha left his, his wife and child, but it's important to remember that once he actually found enlightenment and began to teach that he went back and he, uh, 
he actually took his son back from his mother, from his wife, and his son became a monk. He became the youngest monk, actually, and uh, poor, um, Queen, poor Yashodra, the, the mother of this little boy, the, the Buddha's wife, was so distraught that her son was taken from her, just, he was just seven years old, that uh, she, was, you know, she really pleaded, please don't do that, please don't take him away. But the Buddha could see his, his potential for awakening. So he trained his son in, in, the, in the Dharma and Vinaya, and uh, quite quickly, within not too long, when he was still seven years old, his son Rahula became fully enlightened, Arahant. So even though he kind of left them when, when, he was a, when this little boy was a baby, he, he came back and gave the greatest gift to his son. And later, and because um, Yashodara, the mother of little, of little Rahula, was so, so distraught, um, after that the Buddha decided, okay, one can't become a monk fully ordained until, until 20 years old. So until you've kind of grown up and, and old enough to move home. So after that, all uh, any monks or nuns were <coughs> had to be 20 years old before taking ordination. But little Rahula, he was only seven and he became fully enlightened. And later also Yashodara joined the nun's order and she also became enlightened. So although it looked kind of a bit rough at the beginning, you know, the Buddha came back and gave the, the greatest gift to his wife and to his son. And anyway, so he left the palace and he uh, became, uh, he, he, he studied with a teacher who taught the jhanas, the high meditation, subtle meditation practice, which was practiced at that time already in India. And he practiced to a point where he was actually, he actually surpassed his teacher. So his teacher said, you know, why don't you stay with me? We can, you, can, you can be the teacher, I'll step aside, you can be the teacher. You'll have great followings, there'll be lots of people, there'll be crowds coming. And the Buddha said, no, I, I, I want to find the path to happiness. And so he left that teacher, went to another, and he practiced with him, also a jhana practitioner, practiced with him until he was equal to him, took it as far as it can go. And this teacher said, stay with me, you know, we can teach together, we'll have huge followings. And the Buddha said, no, because I haven't found the path, I haven't found the way out of suffering. So even though he could experience the most subtle, uh, refined mind states in, in the, the practice of the jhanas and the formless jhanas. Still, he recognised this is this is a conditioned state, and this is not true liberation. So he left that, and he became an ascetic. He practised for some, several years as an ascetic. With and uh, as he was practising, others, you know, he kind of met some others, and they got together, and there were there were six of them all together. So he and five others, and they would practise. You know, you kind of get the impression they were competing as to be who could be the most ascetic of the ascetics. And so he practiced until he almost died. And they say that when he touched his belly, he could feel his spine. He was so thin. And when he touched his spine, he could feel his belly on the other side. So he was totally thin. And, and even though he, was, um, he had quite a fair skin uh, before, he'd been out in the sun so much that he looked like he was burnt. So he became, his skin became leathery and black and burnt looking. And, and his eyes kind of sank back into their 
sockets and he looked very, very old and sick and kind of scary. And uh, at one point he recognised, you know, this isn't working, I can't even, can't even stay present, you know. I'm so emaciated, I can't even keep any kind of concentration, you know, there's, there's no energy in the body. So uh, the story goes that a, a young girl was coming, or a young woman was coming to the, Sujata was coming into the forest to make offerings to a tree spirits and saw him sitting there and, and offered this delicious milk rice to the, to the emaciated ascetic Gotama. And he took the rice and ate it and immediately felt a sense of well-being and clarity started to come back to his mind. And he recognized, well, that, you know, there needs to be a middle way. We need to, to, the extreme of asceticism is not the way. The extreme of sense indulgence is not the way. The extreme of, of solely practicing the subtle meditations, the sajanas, is not the way. And so he kept, he kept looking, he kept seeking and investigating until, until he kind of, in a, in a way, kind of stumbled across the way. And so as he was sitting there feeling a bit refreshed from the food, this good food that was offered, he remembered a time when he was a boy sitting under a rose apple tree. And as he was sitting there, he was watching his father doing a ceremonial kind of beginning of the, of the ploughing of the, in, the, in the early, in the springtime. And, or maybe it was in the winter, I'm not sure, but ploughing anyway. And uh, as he was sitting there his, uh, as a boy, his mind had just relaxed and opened and had opened into the experience of everything as it was. So there was no more the sense of contracted self, separate self. There was just this opening into being. And the mind was collected and present and bright and there were no hindrances. The mind was just open and bright and clear. And he remembered that moment and he recognized, oh, that, that is the mind state that I, that I need to, to find again. So he, he's, you know, he's, <laughs> he struggled and, and you know, in, tried all kinds of ways to, to come back to the, the place of, of balance and he was challenged by all kinds of mind states, you know, fear and greed and doubt and restlessness and despair and, and you know, all of these mind states would come and torment him and he just determined, I'm not going to budge until I find what I'm looking for, until full enlightenment. And eventually after sitting through many, many challenges, both internal and external, with, with the elements, the mind broke open and he, he saw the truth of the way things are. And he dwelt in that space, in that state, for the rest of his life, fully enlightened. So I like to think that he, you know, he went through all of those extremes and each one he left behind him. He, he, he took each thing to its absolute limit and then he left it and said, that's not it. Then he took the next thing to its limit and he left it and that's not it. And then the next thing, that's not it. And he, he just kept trying, kept trying until he found, and what he, you know, what he found was the middle way between the two extremes. This is the path that leads to the ending of suffering. So thanks to the, his hard work, not that we don't have to work hard too, but you know, we don't have to go through the, all of those extremes ourselves. And there's a, a point where he says, any pleasure that, uh, that a, a person can experience, however, however wonderful that pleasure is, 
it can be equal to the pleasure that I've experienced, but not greater than. And any suffering that any human being can experience, however intense and painful it may be, it can be equal to the suffering that I've experienced, but not greater than. So he's, he's gone to the, to the whole extreme, and that's the this extreme of suffering physically and you know, through the internal challenges and, the, and physical challenges, and also pleasure through sense pleasures, you know, enjoying wonderful things, and also through very subtle mind states, you know, beautiful meditations. So, so you know, he's, he's, re he's experienced the whole gamut, the whole spectrum. And however, you know, whatever we might follow, it won't be greater than what he's already experienced. And his, his, his realization was to come into the, into the middle between those extremes. <coughs> so, you know, he taught, well, first of all, he didn't want to teach. He felt like this is much too subtle, people aren't going to get this. People lo really love their attachments, you know, people love to follow their attachments. Why, do, why am I going to bother trying to teach people how to enlightened because they're just going to follow their attachments anyway. It's kind of a waste of time, it's much too difficult. But uh, fortunately he was requested, they say, by one of the devas to, uh, to teach out of compassion for those with little dust in their eyes. So he began to teach and he, he taught the, the first people, he taught with the five ascetics who he'd practiced with. And he taught them the Four Noble Truths. So I don't know if you're familiar with those. And uh, the, f the, the noble truth of there is dukkha or unsatisfactoriness, the noble truth that there is a cause, the noble truth that there is the cessation of dukkha and the, the eightfold path which leads to the cessation of dukkha. So, This is, um, this is about turning around and meeting our experience as it is. So we, we tend to want to follow what is pleasant and get away from what is unpleasant. And that's the natural kind of movement of the mind. And in our practice, we're learning to turn around and face what is, what is here now, as it is. So. You know, when we, a lot of the time we just don't pay attention to what's going on. We're in some dream world, or we're, we're planning, or we're remembering, or we're hoping, or we're worrying about, or we're anticipating, or we're just kind of not quite here, kind of fuzzy. So the Buddha is pointing us to, to look clearly at our, at our direct experience to turn the attention back inward, you could say, to begin with at least, inward, and to be aware of our direct experience as it is, and to recognize where we cling, hold on to, and attach to and complicate the experience that we have right here and now. And when we see that we're clinging, holding on, and, and uh, complicating to release that grip, to let go. 
and in letting go we can experience a sense of freedom. So, so I'd like to just go into some time of meditation now. So if you're, I don't know, if, is there anybody here who's new to meditation? No, okay. So then establish a, a posture that's, that's comfortable but not too comfortable. And that's where your spine is upright. It's very important that the energy can move freely up the spine all the way up through the back of the neck to the, to the head. So it helps to, if you, one way of doing this is to lift the, to just lift the base of your spine a little bit with a cushion or a, a stool or if you're on a chair and just to have your feet on the ground or on a cushion up beneath you and just imagine your spine, you can imagine it like a, like a, a stack of coins stacked up one on top of the other. So it's not all bent over. If it's all bent over, they fall down. Going right the way up through the back of the neck, right up into the base of the skull. Become aware of your body sitting here, if you're not already. Just really feel what it feels like. Coming into direct experience. You can feel the weight of your body, the contact of your body with the seat. Just allowing yourself to fully be here. And just recognizing if your mind is you know, thinking about the rest of the day or what you just left behind at home or what you're going to be doing next week. And just say, for this time, for this day, you can be fully here, fully present. So there is nothing more important than being right here with this body. So feeling the gravity, the sense of pressure and connection as you sit. Feeling the foundation beneath you.
just bringing your attention up through your body. Just recognizing any warmth, coolness. You might be able to feel your clothing. You can probably feel the, the life energy in this body. So bringing your attention up through the body. Coming up through the torso. And up the neck. Feeling your whole head. It's a lot of sensation. Particularly in the face. It's a lot of sensation if you pay attention. Feeling what the face feels like. Recognizing how we hold it, how we meet the world. Just allowing our muscles to relax, not having to be anybody. Tension down to your shoulders and just recognizing if there's a lot of weight on your shoulders. See if you can invite it to just slide away. down your arms. Right the way down through your hands to the fingertips. And 
you know, bringing attention to this experience, this direct experience, this body as it is, sitting here. Being aware of the breath, just the natural breath as it enters and leaves the body. And just notice if when you put attention on the breath you feel you have to start controlling it. This is often the case that we don't have to control the breath. The breath knows what to do. So just bring attention to the rise and fall of your belly with each breath. If you find you feel a bit sleepy, you can put particular attention on the in-breath. Make the in-breath a little clearer and maybe even a little longer than the out-breath. So we can you know, exercise a little control over the breath to uh, help ourselves wake up. And then once we're a bit more bright, then we can let it rest again naturally. If you feel restless, then you can just let the out-breath be a little longer than the in-breath. Put a little emphasis on the out-breath. So first you have to see and notice the way your mind is, and then you can respond from there.
and staying present with this body breathing.
being present with each breath.
<clears throat> I thought uh, it would be nice to, uh, with this being a day long, that we could keep noble silence through the day so that we can build up the, and the collect and build up the mindfulness. And looks like the rain stopped, which is great. For a little while at least. So. So I think everyone here is, is uh, certainly feels like everyone's quite experienced in, in meditation practice. Um, so I'll do this, but I'll keep just giving a little guidance through the day, even though you probably are already quite experienced, because I think it's helpful just to, to be reminded to connect with the body and come back to the direct experience that we, that is right now. The mind so often just slips off here and there. So we can just, just keeping mindfulness, just get up. If your legs have gone to sleep, give yourself a minute to get the blood back into your legs. Do some uh, standing meditation. Sorry. So it's, if you can, if you can stand off the mat, it's a little bit better than you find it's a, you've got better foundation. <clears throat> So just feeling that contact of your feet with the ground. You can feel the pressure of your body on those two, two hard-working feet. And just notice, just see if you can bring your, your attention right down into the soles of the feet. Recognizing how often in a day we might be standing while we're doing the washing up or waiting for a, in a queue or something. And usually we're not very present in the body when we stand. We're usually waiting for something or thinking about something. So our mind's either in the head or, or somewhere, our attention is either in the head or somewhere a little bit out, sort of outside of ourselves. So in this practice we're learning to come back to the direct experience of this body so that whatever's going on in our life, whatever turmoils might be going on, whatever worries we might have, whatever problems we might need to solve, that we can have the body as a refuge. We can come back and take refuge in the present awareness this body standing. So the body itself isn't a real refuge because it will die one day and it's ever-changing. But our presence, our awareness and contact with the body in this moment, it, it, that is a refuge. 
So if we get caught up in spinning, we can come back to the simple embodied experience of being here. So feeling your feet on the ground, feel yourself rooted into the ground. As you bring attention to your body standing, you might notice you know, whether you're standing, whether you tend to lean forward or lean back or stand more on one leg or the other leg. And as we, if we stand, if we do that, we put our whole spine out of alignment. So we have these habitual ways of standing. So this is a chance just to notice that and to, and to find that place of balance. We can roll around a little bit the feet, let the body move until you can feel the weight shifting one foot to the other. And just let that come into a place of centeredness where you can feel your feet evenly sharing the weight, not on the balls of your feet, not on the heels not on the edges, not on one side or another, but just spread evenly. And bring attention up from the soles of your feet out through your ankles. Coming up your calves and shins. Coming up through your knees. And just noticing if your knees are locked or whether you can just let them bend a little bit so you've got a little bounce there. You lock the knees and you kind of lock the base of the spine and you lock the back of the neck, it all goes a little bit locked. So you can just let the knees bend slightly. And moving up the thighs. Feeling the strength of the thighs as strong bones, muscles. up to the abdomen. And the, the base of the spine, the buttocks and the base of the spine. Just notice if you hold the buttocks tight and you don't need to, 
both the spine as it's contracted. See if you can let it relax a little bit. Moving your attention up the back, all the way up your back, and just feeling it as it is. There may be pains here and there, or places of numbness, or pleasant, pleasant experiences, and just noticing it as it is. And coming up the the upper back. And the shoulders. If you like, you can lift your shoulders to your ears and then let them drop a few times. I'm feeling the energy Moving down the arms, feeling your arms. Right the way down through the wrists and the hands and the fingertips. Just knowing what they feel like. Bring your attention back to the shoulders, the back and the shoulders. And up the back of the neck. Over your whole skull, all of the head. You might be able to feel your hair. down to the face, jaw, can just notice if you hold your jaw tightly, can let it relax. 
your neck. chest. You can just imagine the point, so there are a point on each shoulder, just imagine that widening. So this isn't forcing the chest open, but just subtle. Imagine that point between your shoulders just widening a little. down to the belly, Attention right the way down the legs. And feeling the contact of your feet on the floor. Just let your attention broaden to take in this whole body as it stands here. feet on the floor, the sense of groundedness and the space around you and above you. Recognizing with the breath, it's like that swinging door between the inner and the outer, <coughs> between the space around us and the space within us. presence to this body standing.
This is something we can do at any time, you know, if we remember in our daily life. We find ourselves standing, caught up in lots of thinking, we can remember. Feet are in contact with the ground, body's breathing, we can just come back to the direct experience, it's very grounding. And don't be afraid that you know if you don't get if you don't keep engaged in those thoughts that they won't you won't get the right answer or you won't know what to do, because uh, usually it's, the, it's at the times where we're not thinking that the answer comes. You might have noticed in the meditation, sometimes the most brilliant ideas and solutions come in the middle of a meditation sitting. So just to trust that to allow the mind to empty and to come into the direct experience of the body is. Uh, beneficial in every way. So we can do some walking meditation now and I'd like if uh, just you know, also using this as a mindfulness practice if, if we could just leave out five chairs and the rest could be put away stacked up. And uh, I thought we could do because it's well it's, it, it isn't actually raining at this moment but I think we can do a, a, a walking meditation rather than the individual paths that we can just follow each other. So I'll lead it and you, if you kind of all kind of come behind me and follow me, and I'll walk in different parts of the this part of the building, and that we just bring attention as we walk to our feet. First of all, so to, to collect the mind, we pay attention to the soles of the feet. And then, just a little way into the meditation, if you find that you're you're present, then you know also be aware. You can like broaden your awareness. So once the mind's a bit collected, then you can broaden the awareness and just notice what it feels like. So notice whatever comes up, you might feel you really enjoy it, or you might feel really irritated, you don't want to have to walk in the, the way that I'm walking, or in a line. Or you might notice as you walk around the room the different feelings, you know, the different feelings in different parts of the room, or as you get close or far apart from other people, or going through doorways. So just be aware of the of the experience as you move around, and you know we can be a bit oblivious at times to the to the influence of our environment on us and so on our minds. And uh, when we're not aware of how our environment affects us, then we tend to be reactive. But if we can be conscious and aware of, of how we're influenced by our environment, how we're influenced by people around us, how we're influenced by what we're doing, what we're being asked to do then we have a, a choice. When there's awareness, we have a choice in how we respond. When there isn't awareness, we react habitually. So the, you know, the path is leading us to greater freedom, not to greater um, entanglement. And the entanglement comes when we're not really clear and present. The freedom comes when we're aware. So we can notice as we walk the sense of, of wanting to get somewhere, or the wanting there to be a point, and, and as we start to collect and then just walk in a circle with no real beginning and no ending, and we we walk at the pace of the person who is walking the slowest in the, in that circle. And then they might feel like, well, you know, come on, next step, next step. But where is that step going? It's just here. It's just here. So, so 
This is the practice of walking meditations, bringing us back here to what we're experiencing in this moment. And the practice of sitting meditation, mindfulness of breathing, is bringing us back to right here. And there's certainly, um, there's a, you know, the way our minds work is we want to get somewhere, we want to develop something, we want to get results. We want to see the results, we want to be something other than what we are. But the Buddha's path is a path of relinquishment, of letting go, and of of coming back to our true nature, to our true home. So we can recognise in the the meditation how the mind wants to go on to the next thing wants to understand the purpose, wants to see results. And as as our mind is doing this, pulling us off into the future, we're missing what is happening here and now. So we don't have to stop the mind doing it, but we have to notice it, to be aware. And it can take a a little bit of an act of faith to uh, trust that coming into the present is important enough because we tend to rely on our history and past experience and our hopes and expectations for the future. And certainly the way we live our life in this present moment is is very, very important because how we live now kind of moulds the future. What we do with our body and mind in this moment moulds what we meet and who we are in the future. So it is very important. And much of our lives are, are doing, even for us in the monastery, is a lot of doing. So this uh, day long is, is a time to, to pull back from the doing energy and to come back to this place of being. And it can be difficult to change gear. So thinking and doing, these are important parts of our life. But also to put those aside from time to time and to just be with a simple experience of this body, walking, breathing, moving, eating, going to the bathroom, experiencing the different temperatures, different textures, different sense experiences. So I think there was a time when, before we got so complicated, when this was quite natural, that we would you know, just have time in nature, was part of our work and the mind could naturally open and relax. But we've uh, created such a complex society that it's very rare that we really allow ourselves or even trust that it's okay to stop and open to what is. So as I was saying earlier on, you know, the, 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 the 
the Bodhisattva, the Buddha to be, his, his, rec his recognition was after all his incredible practices he was doing, <laughs> trying so hard, the, the, the place that he recognized, the place where liberation, where the mind could be liberated was when it's just, it opens and relaxes, it's, it's, it's being, it's present, it's present with and there's no more tugging and pushing away, no more negotiating, no more wanting and not wanting. So it sounds very simple, but uh, you know, those, those energies of wanting and not wanting are very, very strong currents. So we have to really get to know our mind. And to know the mind, we need to be rooted in the body and also in a, a basic ethical way of living. So if we're living in an unethical way, if we're doing harm, intentionally harming others, or taking what doesn't belong to us, or abusing our sexuality, lying, or getting you know, drunk or stoned, losing mindfulness, then you know this is then we, it's like we we lose the protection of mindfulness. We we start to create um, the cause for unhappiness in the present and in the future. So to live within the, the boundaries of these basic ethics it really helps the path, it's a vital aspect of the path to awakening. And to have a sense of connection and groundedness with the body and to get to know the mind as it goes through its many stories and pulls us this way and that. So it takes effort and persistence and mindfulness. It takes uh, compassion for, our, for the state that we find ourselves in, which is often not quite how we'd like to be. And the wisdom to keep looking and investigating But when we bring all of these elements together, then we are walking the path to enlightenment, path to liberation, to freedom from suffering. Enlightenment can be a bit of a loaded word, but let's say freedom from suffering, freedom. So we all have the potential, because we, because we are all inherently, our true nature, let's say, is awake. And, uh, and then through following the wrong directions so many times, we've, we've forgotten, we've, we've lost sight of our true nature. But for each one of us, you know, it is possible to come back to what is clear and bright and present. So you might think, well, it's all very well she's saying that, you know, she's a nun and probably has a lovely, peaceful life and doesn't have any of the challenges that I have. I probably have different challenges. 
that's, uh, you know, it's, it's, you could say it's the birthright of, of every human being. It's what we, it's what, it, what is waiting for us to rediscover it. It's waiting to be rediscovered. This true natural state of freedom. And I'm sure many people here are in Santa Cruz, so I'm sure many people <laughs> tried many ways to find that freedom. And, uh, and now you're here, sitting in a meditation hall. So it's trusting that bringing the mind back to this present direct experience, having the, the patience and the effort and the compassion and the wisdom to keep doing that will have profound effects both in this present moment and potentially in future present moments, if I may say that. We'll just sit for another 15 minutes. And as we sit, you can feel, see if you can be in touch with the possibility of, of this being, of, of you, of this being, being open to finding freedom from suffering, finding the, the ultimate happiness. Just be open to the possibility. So with each breath, Just seeing how innocent the breath is. Even the mind might be complex and have a you know, long history, maybe full of all kinds of thoughts and perceptions. Come back to the breath, you see it's just it's very simple. And yet it is also a profound teacher. I've been a nun for about 19 years now in the monastery and every day in those 19 years, not always in the monastery, I've also had times wandering with, on arms for longish periods of time sometimes. And every day this body is sustained through the generosity of others. And for me, or for us as monastics, that's a, a real incentive to use our life in, in a skillful way, you know, to really make use of the practice, and not just to kind of, you know, come on stage and look like a nun and then go home and do what we like, and come out again, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you 
but to really live, live it <coughs> in the, as much as we can. And uh, in San Francisco, so we live in San Francisco in a little vihara, a house. And once a week we go on arms, on Mondays, every Monday we go on arms. We've done that since we first ever went there. In the, we first spent two months there in um, January, February 2009. And from the first week we went out to the local shopping area on arms. And uh, have been quite amazed actually at the generosity of people. So we don't, not every day, not every, we don't always come back with food in our bowls, but almost always. And sometimes there's so much that we can hardly carry it back. So it's just quite amazing that this can still, you know, that we can still live as alms mendicants at this time. So uh, if, if people have brought food and they would like to offer, we would be very grateful to receive it. <laughs> but if you don't offer it, then we won't, uh, we'll just, let us observe the feelings of rumbling <laughs> stomach. <laughs> so this is a good time if you don't need to prepare anything and, uh, on the table. It's a good time to do that. So as <clears throat> we sit for another period of meditation. Just feel in the body the effects of having eaten, gone for a walk, and you know, the effects that this has on the body. So my body feels very different to when I arrived here this morning now. So when I first sat down here and just had a sense, well, how's the body right now? Felt very different to how it feels now, even though I'm sitting in the same place, same posture that the you know, conditions have changed. So it's important to, to, pay, to be aware of that, to pay attention to you know, how things change moment by moment. So I find it very helpful each time, to, each time you sit, each time you sit in meditation position, ready for the next sitting, that you just have a little look and see how is the body right now? How does it feel? And the mind state. So if you've been cultivating mindfulness through the day, you'll feel the strength of that, the clarity of that. If your mind's been scattered, you've been letting it wander here and there, then you'll feel the confusion or scatteredness of the mind. So as we pay attention, we learn from this body and mind. Shows us the results of our actions. So let's just come back inside. Scanning attention through the body, feeling any vibrations, heat, coolness, 
comfort and discomfort. It's knowing that direct experience. And bring attention to the breath. To see how the breath is connected to that great space in which we live, the wind. It's connected to every other breathing organism, animal and plant. We breathe in, we can breathe in that connection, sense of interconnection. So our breath is shared by the trees. My out breath gives nourishment to the trees, and the trees' out breath gives nourishment to me. So we become part of each other. And uh, all the other animals, and even the little microorganisms that you find in the soil and crevices of houses, they're all breathing too. As we breathe, we can feel that interconnectedness with all things, all living things, all living beings. So the thinking mind thinks in terms of me and mine, separate. It's just a, it's a question, you know, how separate are we?
using the breath as a teacher and the body as a teacher. As we pay attention to the breath and feel the flow of the breath coming into the body, cool, we feel the flow coming out, it's warmer, has a softer texture. It's just really directly knowing the breath. And recognizing that we're all interconnected, we can, on the in-breath, breathe in an intention of, of loving-kindness or unconditional love into your body. So just as the, the oxygen in the, in the breath nourishes your body and mind, you can also bring in the intention of loving-kindness. Let that nourish your body and mind. So you're breathing it right through your body, right into your body. 
And as you breathe out, you can breathe out that same intention of loving kindness, sharing it with everyone here in the room. Just using the breath and our intention. Accomplished spiritual teachers at that time. And uh, you know, there are people who are teaching the, the, the subtle meditation techniques of the jhanas. And there were people who were teaching on karma, although slightly differently to how the Buddha taught. And the understanding of impermanence was already recognized by some teachers. So the, really at the heart of the Buddha's teaching, at the, at the very core, you could say, are the three characteristics. Um, so one of these being recognizing that all, all phenomena, everything that happens, everything that we experience, everything that we think we are, everything that we think is solid and real, is impermanent. And this isn't a, I don't say this as a, as, a, as a dogmatic statement that you have to believe in, but it's something to be, to be looked into and investigated. So, you can just see through this day, since we came this morning, we came together this morning, um, the, you know, how many times we've breathed, let's say, between now and then. And so how much of that air that we've been breathing how much we've already shared. Going down the street, we'll have shared it with all kinds of... everything, really, with everything. That wind blowing. And, you know, so, so at what point is the breath me? And at what point is it no longer me? And also with our bodies, you know, we take, we take these bodies to be me and mine. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of... it seems like that. I was born at this date, and then I went to, you know, grew up with my mom and family, and then I went to school, and you know, I can remember things that happened, and it's, and I can say, of course, this is this, this is me and mine. You know, it's obvious, isn't it? And on one level, it is. It, on one level, that's true, and on another level, it isn't, because I can't decide. You know, I can't say I want this body to be a certain colour, or, or even, I mean, to a little degree we can change the shape, but not much. <laughs> and it usually takes a lot of hard work. <laughs> you know, we can change the colour of our hair, if you have some. And, uh, you know, you can change your clothes, you can change a few things, change your image, but you can't really, you know, the body is doing what it's doing. And certainly, for me, Recognizing through in adolescence when the body suddenly starts growing and changing shape, I think that was the first time I really kind of got it that I didn't have any control over this body. You know, it's going to do what it wants to do, <laughs> and it wasn't sort of how I planned it to be, but it turned out like this. <laughs> so you know, so we, we call it we call this body me and mine, but it, it's doing its own thing. It's breathing, it's digesting, it's you know, it's it's using the the lymph, it's, it's healing, it's doing all kinds of stuff. It's not us doing it. We're not saying, okay, now I'd like you to digest that meal I just put in there, thank you. A little bit faster, a little bit slower. You know, it just, it's doing what it's doing. And 
we can we can bring the intention. We can put bring the intention of of uh, well-being to this body. You know, we can we can influence it, but we can't really. It's not really ours to control. So you know, we can control it in, in that we don't use it for harm to do harm. We don't go around hitting people, taking things that don't belong to us, and stuff like that, vandalizing, whatever. We can we can have that much control over it, hopefully. But we don't really have the you know. It's not we can't determine. We can't. I can't say. Okay, I think I'm old enough now. I'd like to just stay at 43. <laughs> You know, it's, it just keeps aging, the body keeps aging, it's doing its thing. The hair keeps growing and falling out, and the skin, you know, sloughs off, and then more, more is produced underneath, it's constantly changing. And they say that the, the entire body, even, even the, I think it's the bones are probably the slowest to change, but every cell in the body is completely renewed within a seven-year cycle. And, some, and many of the cells are renewed much, much more rapidly than that. So. We've already had quite a few bodies in this time that we've been alive, you know. And yet we, we so much identify and call this body me and mine. So the Buddha was asking us to look more carefully at this assumption of, of me and mine, of, of uh, well, of, of impermanence, of the, the kind of illusion of being a, a separate self, and of the of the dukkha, or of the unsatisfactoriness of trying to find something lasting and satisfying in this ever-changing world. So, you know, we, we, we can't help but fall into the sense of, of, of uh, even we know things are changing and, you know, the world's constantly turning and you can feel it just walking down the street and back, you know, the wind's blowing, the plants, of, you know, the roses are, are, are going brown through the rain and, and the waves are crashing, you know, it is, it's, it's, it's a blatant teaching on impermanence. <laughs> it's yelling at us, you know, impermanence, it's that there it is. And yet we can't help but think, of, think in terms of things, so we see the ocean, those great waves, we think, oh that's the ocean and this is Santa Cruz, so that's the, that's the Pacific Ocean at Santa Cruz, you know, we make things into things. But is it is it a thing, or is it a, is it a constantly changing phenomena? So, you know, the the Buddha is encouraging us to look more carefully at our experience, and I'm sure you know everyone will know the how it feels to when when we get caught, when we get locked into a way of thinking or into a belief about ourselves, and it feels so real. You feel like, oh gosh, this is, you know, maybe you're going through depression, life's difficult, and, and you feel, oh gosh, this is just, you know, I'm just hopeless and I can't get out of this, you know, and it's never really worked anyway, and I've never been any good anyway. You might get stuck in this kind of way of thinking, and when you're in that, it, it feels very believable, and then you're, you become that, and then you think, well, I've always been like this, and it will always be like this. Or you can even experience it during a meditation. Oh my God, because it's still for another, <laughs> however long it is, and it's going to go on forever, and it can feel like that. Or you might be experiencing it at a really deeply peaceful meditation, and being like, oh. or not even thinking about it, but just enjoying 
the timeless bliss of meditation and then the bell rings and you've got to get up and eat or something. And you thought, oh, I wanted that to go on forever. So this is what we do with experience, you know, we, we want it to last forever or we want it to stop as soon as possible or we fear it's going to last forever. But you know, the teaching is that everything is changing. When we notice everything is changing in every moment. And if we live life without knowing this, without knowing the impermanence of our body, of our mind states, of our perceptions, feelings, of the, of the sense experience, it's, it's constantly changing. If we live without knowing that, then we, we're kind of trapped. We live in a kind of prison that we create through our own thinking. So we, we think ourselves into being a, a solid, separate somebody. And we think ourselves into, you know, when, when feelings arise, we, we think them into, into solidity, into being, into being absolute. But actually, when we notice, they are changing. So we can, when we know that, and we have some grounding, so I've been doing some guided, you know, being in the body, feeling the sense of connection with the body. This is very important for grounding. because so the mind can go wander off into all kinds of places. So when we have some grounding and we can, we can be with the experience that arises, we can be with the most pleasant states, the most blissful and beautiful states, and be fully with them and know that they're changing. And we can be with the most painful, worrying, you know, racking kind of feelings. And we can be with them because we know that they're changing. And when we know that, when we, when we see directly the changing nature of our experience, moment by moment, then we don't have to become that. So I think often people misunderstand the meaning of letting go. And then I think, or, or if, if they think impermanence, but if everything's impermanent, then nothing matters, and everything's kind of pointless and irrelevant, so, so it doesn't, nothing really matters, I can do what I like. But if you think about it, you know, if you think about, um, well, the, the image that comes to mind kind of immediately is, because when I lived in Amravati Monastery, we would have these plastic cups that everybody would use, as a big community, and there'd be these plastic cups you can have your tea in a plastic cup in the morning and then it gets washed up, they'll get thrown into the, into the washing up bowl and clatter, 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 they get washed up and if you drop it, oops, you know, not very mindful, wash it again. And, and, but you don't really take a lot of care because you know that they're kind of not going to break very easily. And then there was also this one very precious bone china tea set that was in the abbot's room where he would receive, in the abbot's reception room. And uh, sometimes very kind of eminent guests would come and this very special tea set would come out. And I remember as, a, as an Anagarika, um, Venerable Mahagosananda came, a very wonderful monk, just turned up unannounced, as he would sometimes. And uh, so Ajahn Samadhi asked, him, can you make some tea? And here's the, t here's the special tea set. And, and that, you know, knowing that this was, you know, this is, 
this is a precious opportunity. This monk has arrived, he's very special, very beautiful. And he's just appeared, and he's just here for a short time, and I get to make him some tea in this very special tea service. And then being so clear and aware of the, of the, of the impermanence of this experience, and that it's like this is a precious moment. So to do it really well, really beautifully, and offering the tea, having a lovely connection with this, this kind of saintly monk, and then waiting, and then after the tea's finished, taking the, the um, tea set and washing it up carefully, drying it carefully, putting it back into the abbot's reception area. And it just struck me, you know, because I knew that that was it, that, you know, that this tea set is irreplaceable and it's, and it's precious, and this moment with this monk is, is uh, rare and precious with this kind of very, I don't know whether he was enlightened or close to enlightenment, but certainly very radiant, pure being. Because of knowing, recognizing directly the impermanence, there's a, a real sense of presence and connection and care. So when we pay attention to, to the changing nature of things, it's not that it all becomes pointless and nothing matters, but it's that we see the preciousness of this moment. We don't just take it for granted in the way that we do when we assume this is me, I'm going to live for 80 years and it's just going to go, carry on like this. You see the preciousness of this moment. And that it'll never be like this again. It'll never be like this again. It's just like this now. So when we really see that, it's an incentive to bring in to this moment you know, the best that we can. And when we're just sort of thinking in terms of a blur, you know, we can easily, I mean, I certainly know myself, you know, can easily just kind of be half present, half doing things, you know, not, not really being with what we're doing, not really caring about how it, how it ends. And if we're really present, then kind of look for opportunities to bring something good into this moment. So even with something as simple as breathing, you know, we can just breathe normally, and we can breathe and ignore the fact we're breathing. This very, very precious process that is happening all the time. The breathing, you know, if we don't, if we go without breath for three minutes, probably five minutes, that's it. No more. Start going back to the elements. So it's very precious, this breath, but we just take it for granted. Don't even notice it. So, even with something as simple as a breath, we can, when we're present with the breath, then we can also bring in the sense of well-being with the breath. Give it an opportunity to, to wish this being well. And, it's a, and we can send out a, a sense of well-being on the breath. You know, so we, so we, in, we, we give something to the moment, we, act, we offer something into this moment. And probably, you know, much of our lives are, are, are missed, missing that opportunity, we miss that. I uh, certainly can speak for myself. <laughs> but then, you know, when we can actually slow down enough to remember and recollect that there's, there is this opportunity to be present, to be fully present, and in that presence to give something that's beneficial 
to ourself and to others. So you might find this a bit odd because I'm talking about no self, and I'm talking about being beneficial to oneself. You know, what's she talking about? So there is the, you know, there's the relative truth and the ultimate truth, and ultimately, you can't pin anything down if you really look. You can't hold on to anything, and believe me, I try, <laughs> but you can't if you really, if you really notice. What can you hold on to? What, what's what can we really call solid and stable? And then there's the, the relative truth of, of sentient beings. You know, if we ignore that relative truth, then we become kind of cold and heartless. And this is, the, for me, the real beauty of the Buddha's teaching is that he brings together, he brings together the, the ultimate truth of, of everything is empty. And there is no self in any condition. And he brings that together hand in hand with the relative truth that there are sentient beings and there is the result of good action and the result of, of bad action. There are relatives, you know, we have we there is there is the the result of sharing punya, sharing the merits that I was speaking about earlier. So he also speaks about all of these things. So he doesn't just say everything is ultimately empty and so everything's empty, everything's empty. He does say that, you know, that everything's empty and he says there is this sentient experience. And it's not something we can understand through thinking. But the, the heart knows, the mind that's, that's here and the heart knows. So when we slow down enough, we, we have this opportunity to, to investigate the assumed reality of things. And the more that sense of solidity and reality softens and, and breaks down, then the easier it is to respond to life in a wholesome way. And the more we feel that we are a separate self in this cruel world, having to struggle along, then the more we bump up against, we, we knock into and bump <coughs> up against things, you know, the more we, we have to defend ourselves and justify our actions and blame others because we, we're having to look up, we're having to keep reasserting and reaffirming this separate self. And the more we understand that we're all interconnected, we're all human, we're all pretty, pretty similar, really, then the, the more naturally compassion starts to arise. So we see our own suffering and we just naturally start to feel compassion for the suffering of others. And we see the, the, the kind of humility, in a way, of, of, of being a human being. And then when we see that in our, in our own life, then, you know, the, the there's the ideal of what we'd like to be and how we'd like to be functioning and then there's the reality of, of how we are and what's really going on and there can be a big gap between those. So it's important to come back 
from the ideal. It's okay to have an ideal as like a shining, a guiding star to sort of look towards. But if we think we should be that ideal, then we're not really in attune with what's happening here, with, with how things are. So we need to come back to the, and be honest, you know, with, with things as they are. And to start from this place, rather than starting from a place of, you know, 20 leagues away from us. And it's a, it's a humbling path. And it's also a, an incredible um, mind-opening path. So we can start by feeling like, oh gosh, you know, when I come back to how I really am, there's a feeling like, oh my goodness, <laughs> how am I ever going to get anywhere with this? Yeah. And you know, we're speaking about the Buddha today, and you can think, well, he was a Buddha, you know, he was like such an amazing being, and it doesn't, it's not really relevant to my life. But the, 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 if I may use the word magic of the path, the, the wonder of the path, of the practice is that you know, we, we begin by seeing all of, the, well we maybe begin by having delusions of our own uh, potential and then, we, but then when we come back to how things are, you know, we can sort of feel like, gosh, you know, I'm never going to get very far with, with what I've got. <laughs> we see the things we're lacking, you know. And, but if we start from here, Whatever, whatever it is we find, or we might, we might be very happy with our, you know, our karmic situation. But if we start, whatever it is, if it's, if it's great, or if it's, if it's kind of mediocre, or if it's really tough, if we start from here, where, however, whatever here is, then we find that things unfold in the most unexpected ways. So the, the perceptions that we have of ourselves and of, of life can completely change. And the, the patterns that we find ourselves caught in, when we bring presence to them, they can completely unravel. And we find this sense of freedom. And you know, it, the, the real trick is, it's a tricky one, is to just keep stepping into the path and the practice, because we tend to, you know, have a goal of what we want to get, and then we listen to, how do I get there? How do I get that? How do I get enlightened? And then we're always kind of manipulating it and, and you know, trying to trying to get something, angling to get something. But actually, the path is a path of relinquishment. It's a path of, of honesty, of cultivation of of the good and relinquishment. And it can be in those, those moments of letting go, which again we can't really control, we can't make the mind let go. But we can work, we can develop the right conditions and we can work towards cultivating what is wholesome and lessening what is unwholesome. And you know, keep, keep bringing the right conditions together. And then at times we can find that there's just suddenly a big opening. And you know, it's as though you just kind of zoom onto another 
level altogether. And then we look back and, and at, the, at where we began and wonder, well, how did I believe all of that? You know, how could I have, have been so caught in that in that way of thinking? And then it it had been so real because we've moved on. So the path has this kind of wonderful quality that it that it suddenly things suddenly open up, things suddenly drop away, and. It, it might come after a long period of struggle, you know, you might have to work hard for a long time and, you know, keep going and keep going. And then at some point, just when the conditions are right, you know, the mind opens. So I live with, uh, in Aloka Vihara with uh, Ajahn Santachita and Anagoka Maria now. And I've lived, um, Ajahn Santachita and I've known each other for about 19 years now. We arrived in, in Amravati Monastery at about the same time in England. And uh, <laughs> one thing I've, I've noticed about her over the years is, you know, sometimes, sometimes you know, in, in one's life things get really difficult, you know, and there can be times in the monastic life where it just gets really, really tough. And there are times when it's really great, you know, and there's times when it's kind of easy. But you do definitely have some pretty tough times. <laughs> And uh, what I've noticed uh, with, over the many years I've known her is, is every now and again some teacher will say, well, I suppose we better just keep going. <laughs> go through a really, really tough time and say, well, I guess we better just keep going. You know? And uh, it's become a real kind of, I don't know, that, just that phrase in itself has become like a friend over the, over the years because, you know, sometimes you can doubt and you can wonder if it's all worth it and, you know, feel like you want to be doing something else instead. And then just that little phrase, well, better keep going. Keep going in the right direction. So I'd like to just really encourage you to, you know, to have that, well, to, to investigate for yourselves. And, you know, both, both study is good, but study of the heart is the best. And you know to to learn from your own investigations, and to develop that confidence that keeping on going, you know, keeping on on bringing the mind back to this present moment, and keeping on cultivating the good, and keeping on lessening what is you know the wholesome, the sorry, keeping on you know diminishing the unwholesome habits of mind is leading in the right direction. It can only lead in the right direction. So, uh, so the Buddha pointed the way to the ending of suffering. He found the way and he points to us the way to the ending of suffering, to the complete cessation of suffering. An attractive prospect, isn't it? Mm. And he also, you know, encouraged, he asked us, this is to be, this is for you to come and have a look for yourself. This is to be experienced individually by the wise, by that within you which is wise. So, however great a teacher, even a Buddha, a fully enlightened Buddha can't, you know, can't make somebody enlightened by some magic dust or, a, you know, a mantra or something but he can point the way 
and then it's up to us to to come and have a look for ourselves to investigate for ourselves and to see you know what we find and keep looking keep looking and you know if we do find some freedom you know to, to bring that into our lives don't just keep it on the cushion and you know start resenting the rest of your life because it's because you had that experience while you're sitting and now you've got to you know go to work and deal with kids and all the stuff but just bring bring your experience into your life bring your insight into your life live it and then you become a, a source of blessings for the world it's much needed this time so I'd like to offer that as a reflection and if anyone has any questions uh, of anything that's come up through the day this is a, or if you'd like to share anything about your experience then, and practice then this is a, a good time and we, we're going to end it we'll end the question answers we have about, let's see, we have about 10 minutes let's say 10-15 minutes for the question and answers we're going to be leaving at 3.30 so a lot can happen in 10 minutes, yes sometimes I hear about this, this being that's here called a witness uh -huh. do you have any response to this? Mm -hmm. So the witness, it isn't a being. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but you can, you can, I'm sure, recognize, you know, that there's, there's the totally being caught up in experience, and then there's the having a perspective on experience. And, uh, you know, people speak about awareness, awareness itself. So uh, uh, awareness, knowing awareness. It's one of these things when you start talking about it, it gets a bit complicated because we think in terms of things and beings and persons and so it's, it's difficult to think outside of that box but uh, what we can know, you know, when we, when we become aware of our experience so that there can be, you can recognise you're caught up in a thought for example caught up in thought, caught up in thought, caught up in thought, caught up in thought, caught up in thought and there's, oh, I'm caught up in that thought there's a, there's a, what is it that knows that? There's a knowing. So we tend to then, the, the knowing is what it is, and we tend to then call it, oh, that's, that's the witness, and the witness is that, that kind of bigger person that isn't really me, that's looking, you know, then we, we just add all of these complications. But what it is, is a moment of awareness, and awareness knows itself. You could say awareness knows awareness. And uh, it, is a, it is a very tricky, you know, we can miss, like pick up the Dharma in the wrong way. And I think in the beginning of people's practice, it's often, it's often kind of almost, well, it's kind of okay to do it for a while, that we, tend, we start to split in terms of the, the witness and, the, and, the, and what is being witnessed. I think that's quite common in the beginning. But if you stay in that kind of divided state, then it, it doesn't lead to libera liberation, it leads to confusion and <laughs> schizoid behaviour perhaps <laughs> so it, it can start like that but then we have to, to integrate everything, this is about integrating 
the practice. So, so like I was saying about impermanence, you don't say, oh, I'm this is this, I'm not, there's no self here and this body's impermanent, therefore it doesn't matter. I can do what I like to it. It's, it's recognising, it's having a sense of, of care, compassion, wisdom in relation to your own body and life and in, the, in relation to what you meet. And, and, and knowing, being a direct, directly knowing what is happening here and now. Yes. So the witness perceives what is without the having or subtracting. That's right. Yes. Yes. It just. It, I mean, it's you know, there's analogies are like the sky. You know, the sky is is the sky is the sky, and the clouds come through. You know, clouds come, wind comes, rain, snow, but the sky is just the sky. So you could say it's in that way. The the the, the I don't really like the word the witness because it, gives, it does give the impression of somebody watching something, you know. I'd rather use the term awareness. So awareness itself is like the sky. So it's, it, it's, it's, it just is what it is and then the, the thoughts, the moods, the feelings, all of those things that are going through. And, they, and when we, we hold on to those thoughts, moods and feelings, we become them, you know. It's, it's exciting, it's passionate, it's painful, it's alive and all those things. You know, you can keep doing that until you get tired of it. And but the the um, the awareness is is it's not it's not aloof because you can, it's, it's actually you're you're fully present with the feeling. You're not kind of zooming out there and and being a little bit oh there's that there's that feeling going on down there. It, you're, you're right with it. You're right in the centre of it. You're, you're present, and the and the feeling is arising. It's present. It's changing. It, you don't have to push it away or hold on to it because it's, 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 it's doing what it's doing. So the awareness can be fully present with what is happening without becoming it. Does that make sense? Yes. What's the separate difference between setting your mind in its own natural state and awareness of awareness? Um, awareness of awareness. And the setting of mind is all natural state. So what is the so, difference? So, so, you say, so the first bit, settling. Setting the mind in its own natural state. Setting the mind in its own, own natural state. Uh -huh. And awareness of awareness. Um, it's, it's just language. Just language. Just say it. Yeah. So the, the, mind, the, the natural state is what it is. Yeah, this is the, it's, you know, we do that, it's, it's very easy to do that, you feel, so, yeah, especially as you get older, you know, oh my gosh, you start seeing life ticking away, and, yeah, got to make the most of it, got to do something. 
but it really making really making the most of our life is, is being present. That's when we really make the most of it, when we're with what's happening, we're fully present. And I mean this monk actually that I mentioned Vera Mahagasananda, who who was who I was serving the tea to that day, he, you know, he I only met him three times and each time was very transformative for me. I actually feel moved to think about him. Because he was very, very present. He was he was completely present and just like beaming with joy all the time. And he always his mouth even when he was tired, his mouth was it like he was just suppressing a smile. He was just, <laughs> he was just about to burst into a big grin, but he didn't quite do it. He, he always looked like that. And, and you know, it's his, his presence, his, his awareness and presence, it, it's like it awakens the presence within, within us because it's, it's a natural state. But we're all, we all so easily get, get uh, clouded, you know. And so when you're, when you're with somebody who has that quality of presence, it's like, you know that there's nothing more important in the world than being present. <laughs> but then we forget again and then we get into old habits and worries and desires and all of that. Yeah. But really there's nothing more important because there what else I mean, this is life. It's here it is. It's this. Yes. Yes, it's a good question. You know, when we attach, then we experience suffering. And when we experience suffering, it's because we've attached. This is always the case. And it's natural when we have loved ones that we attach. So, um, so when we're parted from our loved ones, we will feel suffering if someone dies or if we're parted through distance, then we, it's natural that we feel grief, you know, a sense of loss. And I would say what is really important is not to think, oh, I shouldn't be feeling this because I should know that everything's impermanent. Mm -hmm. that's, that's wrong thinking. But to, to recognize, you know, when I'm attached, because I love that person and I'm attached to them and now we're, we're parted for whatever reason, then I feel sad. I feel grief, I feel a sense of loss. And allow that feeling to, to be present and know that that feeling is also impermanent. That feeling is impermanent, it's pass, passing through, it's, it's, it belongs, it's meant to be there. And it will, and it will also change. But you, you know that it will change, not in a way that you want to get rid of it, but that you can fully allow it to be present and go through its process and, and, and cease. And, you know, with the death of a loved one, then it, there can be waves of that. It may, you may get one big wave of that, and then, and then it calms down, and then sometime later another wave comes, and then it calms down, and that can go on for a long time. So it's, it's um, in a way, it's having the compassion and wisdom to allow that to, to happen, and to know that it, it is changing, that it's not going to always be that way. One thing I just wanted to ask you, Mary, do, are there chanting books here? Yes, we do have some chanting sheets. Do you have the sharing of blessings? Sharing yeah. Blessings. yeah. Thank you. There's, there's stories about how when, when Shakyamuni was passing, a lot of crying and wailing. That's right. Yeah. And there are other stories of monks who were abbots 
masters, uh, obviously, when they pass on, there's a lot of crying and yes. wailing, and, and they're saying, don't be so attached, but... Yes. There's a, there's a, well, there's two stories. You know, there's one of the actual, of the Buddha's death, mm-hmm. Buddha's Ponyvana, where, where mm-hmm. there's, you know, there was, a, because, it, I mean, I went on pilgrimage in, in 2002-2003, and we went to all the Buddhist holy places, and actually, what, I think the last, or I'm not sure if it was the last place we went to, we went to Kushinagar, where he died, and we went into this uh, little sort of stupa, I think it is, and, and where there's a very beautiful reclining Buddha, anyone who's been on that pilgrimage will know it. Very, very beautiful, big reclining Buddha. And we'd been to all the, the different places where he was born and where he grew up and where he taught and where he lived at different times and where he was enlightened. And so you really got a sense of the person. And then when we went to the, into this stupa, where the, 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 uh, this image was like, I just started to cry. I couldn't help it. I just started, I felt, oh my goodness, you know, to lose, to lose such a, a great being from the world. You know, I, I just couldn't stop, couldn't help it. And then I was thinking about that, that story, because the story is that when the Buddha died, when he left, the, left uh, laid down the candles as they left, left the body, um, everybody was weeping and wailing, and the devas, all the celestial beings, they, they were all crying, and, and all the, the monks and the and the nuns and the lay followers, they're all crying, apart from the enlightened, the arahants. Only the arahants didn't cry, I say. And that when I, I used to, before I went on pilgrimage, I used to hear that story and I'd think, oh yes, you know, the arahants didn't cry because they knew everything's impermanent, they weren't fooled, you know. And then when I was actually at that sitting, sitting there with that image, I, I realised you, you'd have to be an arahant not to cry when the Buddha dies, you know. <laughs> because other than that, you, you can't, how can you help but be heartbroken? You know? So it's, it's about, you know, it's really important to, to be with our, our humanity mm-hmm. and to start from here. Yeah. Yeah. There's also a story, which might be what the one you were referring to, of a Zen master who had two sons, mm-hmm. and, and both sons were killed, uh, I think, in, in accidents in a different, separately within a short space of time. And uh, he had a lot of following uh, followers, this a lot of students, this um, Zen master, and uh, you know was was very realised. And after he heard about both of his sons dying, he heard about one, then he heard about the next one. And he was he was weeping, sobbing, you know. And his students were around him saying, Why are you crying? Why are you crying, Master? Don't you know? All things are impermanent. You know, and he says, I'm crying because I'm sad. Thank you. Stop crying. <laughs> yes, uh, the the white robes are eight preset, so it's a. Maria is a novice and she's still, she can still use money, she can still cook, she can still drive, oh, wow. potentially. She's got a bit of freedom <laughs> for a while. 
And then the brown robe is the 10 precepts, so that's not using money, it's like a, just a, another level of renunciation. Yeah. So before we start, we are, we're going to end with the, the sharing of blessings chant, so we can share the, the blessings of our practice with all sentient beings, those who are friendly, indifferent and hostile. May all beings receive the blessings of my life. But before we, we chant, I just want to bring your attention to these two things. So this is, this is, the, this is our Vihara, this is Aloka Vihara, where we <coughs> live. We live here in San Francisco, in, in this place. And it has the address on the back and the weekly schedule. So if any of you are up that way and, and want to come and visit or take part in anything that's on here, you're very, very welcome. We'd love to have people come. And there's also the website where you can see what we're up to on there. And I'd also like to bring attention to this. This is, a, this is a, a, a flyer of Buddhist Global Relief. So this is a charity that was started by Venerable Bodhi and friends in New York. And it's uh, to provide food security, for, for, particularly for, for children, but not only for children, who are you know, without enough to eat. And many, what they found when they started to, to develop this and investigate more into the charity, they found that one of the key problems is with girls not having education and that many of the girls in poor countries end up in brothels to make money to feed their families because there just isn't enough to eat. So through, the, through this charity there, there are ways you know, that they can help girls stay in school so they don't end up, you know, they have an education, they don't end up in the brothels, they can you know, do actually something good with their life rather than become a commodity which so many thousands of girls do these days, sadly. And they also support uh, education of girls in Af Af Afghanistan and of uh, food security for children in, in um, Sri Lanka. And also they support uh, organic farms in America that feed homeless people. <coughs> so it's, it's a very, very good charity and it's all volunteers. So you know, all the money goes to where it should go to, goes to the people who need it. So I just wanted to plug that, as I do whenever I get an opportunity. <laughs> and I'd like you to, to, if anyone who hasn't picked up one of these leaflets, please pick one up and read it, and at least, you know, read it and, and let it go in, and see whether it moves you to do something. So perhaps also, before we can't, like I say, a couple of things. One is, if you enjoyed today, Please come and join us tomorrow for Vesak, and Sister Anandabodhi will be leading us through that. And if you'd like, um, bring your image of the Buddha to be blessed, because we bathe them all. And if you have any Buddha images that somebody gave you and you're not using and you'd like it to go to a good home, we have a Buddha adoption table. <laughs> so people who don't have one can find one.
that's completely they're supported completely by Donna. So it's really a wonderful <coughs> thing to support the Sangha. So we can bring to heart our cultivation today and through our life and consciously share the, the punya, the blessings of our life with all beings. Now let us chant the verses of sharing and aspiration through the goodness that arises from my practice. May my spiritual teachers and guides of great virtue, my mother, my father and my relatives, the sun and the moon, and all virtuous leaders of the world, may the highest gods and evil forces Celestial beings, guardian spirits of the earth, and the Lord of death, may those who are friendly, indifferent or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the threefold bliss and realize the deathless through the goodness that arises from my practice and through this act of sharing. May all desires and attachments quickly cease and all harmful states of mind until I realize Nibbana in every kind of birth. May I have an upright mind with mindfulness and wisdom, austerity and vigor. May the forces of delusion not take hold nor weaken my resolve. The Buddha is my excellent refuge. Unsurpassed is the protection of the Dhamma. The solitary Buddha is my noble Lord. The Sangha is my supreme support. Through the supreme power of all these, May darkness and delusion be dispelled. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.